Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. This is the fifth chapter of the book we've been working in the last two months. I'll read verses 8 through 20. You can find it in the bulletin. You can also follow along in your own Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 8 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and, and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high officials watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income this also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days... He eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning, that your spirit would be here at work in our hearts. We know that your word is good, it is true, it is right. We know that your word is living and active. We know that by your spirit, you bring dead hearts to life. And so we ask this morning that you would give us new life in Christ Jesus. You would open the eyes of our hearts, open the ears of our minds, that we would see and we would know you better that we would worship and glorify you as you make us like your Son, Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, there's an outline in your bulletin you could follow along. I've, again, I've got it on the whiteboard here. I've, I've written it, so I don't even need to write this morning. We can follow along uh, as I walk through the passage. Let me begin with a little story. Uh, many of you uh, remember two foster kids who lived in our home a few years ago, Grayson and Addie. Grayson was three and Addie was two. Um, and uh, many of you interact with them here in church. But we will never forget the first night that they came to stay at our home. They had recently been placed 
in the foster care system. It was the week before Christmas, and they were placed in a home, and about three days into their time in that home, the foster family realized they couldn't care for these children. And so we were the second stop for them. And so uh, they came to our house. The foster mom came and dropped them off with their two car seats, an outfit for each of them, and a set of pajamas, and that was it. She dropped them on our step, and she took off, and they immediately came into our home like they belonged there. And they, they started to ransack the place, just running circles around our home. And, and we definitely weren't prepared for that moment or the next six months. But after a long evening of, of trying to get to know them, of feeding them uh, dinner, of spending time with them, cleaning them up, and, and eventually getting them to bed, uh, the four of us just kind of collapsed at the end of the evening. We just collapsed in our beds, and we said, we're, we're going to sleep. There's nothing more that we can do. Lord willing, they'll sleep through the evening. And we will never remember this first day because uh, late in the night, probably early the next morning, um, I was awoken by a sound on the other side of the house. And so I said, I'll, I'll go figure out what's happening. I made my way to the other end of the house, came into our living room, and there standing in the kitchen with his back to me was Grayson, three-year-old Grayson. And I said, Grayson, what are you doing? It's, it's the middle of the night. And he turned around to face me, and his left hand was full of Christmas cookies, and his right hand was full of Christmas cookies, and he had crumbs all over his face and crumbs on his shirt, and I don't even remember what I was about to say, but before I could say anything, he says to me, Dad, where's the milk? It's moments like that that would come to define the, the most endearing interactions over the next six months, okay? But I, I share that story with you this morning because as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, we can't lose sight of the fact that this is not only a book about purpose and meaning, it's also a book about security, okay? Purpose and meaning. Solomon has been looking for purpose and meaning throughout the entire work through the book of Ecclesiastes. But in the process of trying to define purpose and meaning, he is also looking for security. Security, one of the most basic needs of the human heart. Safety. Belonging. And in that there is rest. You see, that's the reason that a three-year-old in his first night in someone's home would boldly say, Dad, where's the milk? Not because he's looking for purpose or meaning, not even because he believes that he's found someone to love or care for him, but because he knows entering into our home that the pantry is full, the refrigerator is full, and he can have food whenever he wants it. And in that, for him, there was a level of security. And in security, rest. Grayson and Addie found a lot of rest over the six months that they lived with us. This morning, Solomon is proposing a new solution. He's, he's engaging upon a new experiment. And the experiment that he enters into this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is the experiment of experimenting with affluence. With affluence. Now, affluence is the pursuit of wealth and money. It is the pursuit of wealth and money. And you know that that's the case because if you're paying attention to verses 8 through 15, you recognize all of the adjectives and all of the verbs that this, this passage deals with are all words that, have to, that reflect money and wealth and riches and poorness. Okay? It's mentioned over and over and over again in this passage. And so Solomon will propose that affluence will give us some measure of security in our lives. 
And I say to you this morning, it's the perfect solution. It makes perfect sense because what we believe in our lives in this pursuit of rest is that security gives us rest and security comes from control. And we imagine in our minds if we have affluence and wealth, if we have belongings, that in that there's a great measure of control in our lives. If if you don't believe me, just speculate for a second what would happen if you woke up tomorrow morning and you had a million dollars in your bank account. Out of the blue, it just appeared in your bank account. How would you feel? I guarantee you most of us would feel a greater level of security, wouldn't we? Because with wealth and possessions and belongings, we answer lots of basic questions like what will I eat tomorrow? And what will I wear tomorrow? And will I be warm? And will I have a roof over my head? And will I have a vehicle to get to work? And will I have work at all? And these are all questions that seem to be controlled or answered through affluence, through money and possessions, okay? And so, why does affluence fit in the equation? It it fits very simply because through affluence, we believe we have control. Through control, we have security. Through security, we find rest. That's the logical equation that exists in the human heart, all right? It's the same reason, again, why Grayson would say, Dad, where's the milk? There's food in the pantry. Food in the pantry represents belongings and possessions and things that I can have today or tomorrow or the next day. And if I have that, I have some level of security. And if I have security, I have rest. You get it, don't you? It makes sense. So this morning, Solomon tries out affluence. That's the exercise that we're engaging in in chapter 5. Now, what we find, that's why it fits, but we're going to spend a lot of time why it fails. Why does affluence fail the test of giving control that leads to security that ultimately produces rest? Well, there's a big answer to that question, but there's lots of smaller answers that Solomon engages in in this fifth chapter. Let me point out a few. First of all, beginning in verse 10. Verse 10 basically says, whoever loves money never has enough and is never satisfied. One of the things that we find out about money and affluence and wealth and the almighty dollar and possessions of things is that these things, more than anything else in all of creation, the more you have of them, the more you need, the the more you want, right? And we've talked about that being the case with food, and we've talked about that being the case with work, and we've talked about that being the case with a number of things, but I would suggest to you this morning that the Bible makes a very good argument that money and affluence more than anything else are guilty of this, that there is an inherent characteristic that goes along with money and wealth that is the more you have of it, the more you want or you need, that you never seem to be satisfied with what God has given in the category of money and wealth, okay? So that's the first problem we encounter. The next problem in verse 11. Verse 11 says, as we read the passage, uh, when goods increase, they increase who eat them, right? So that is to say, the more that we have with affluence, the more there is to consume them. And I think this is both a real and a perceived problem. The real problem kind of goes like this. The more money we have, we start a business or we start a family or we build a home or whatever we do with our money, the more there is to feed, the more people there are, the more there are to take care of, to provide for. And that is sort of the logical consequence of having more affluence. But also it is a perceived problem. We often articulate this problem in our culture when we talk about lifestyle creep. You've heard that phrase before, right? Lifestyle creep. It's the problem that exists for all of us. We say, you know, when I was first out of high school or I was first out of college, I was making $2,000 a month. And when I was making $2,000 a month, I could just barely pay the bills and I could just barely take care of my car, 
just barely had enough food on my table. And you say, 20 years later, I'm making like $10,000 a month and I can still just barely take care of my car and put food on the table and, and, and feed the mouths. It's the lifestyle creep. The, the, the more that we have, the more there is to consume. And again, that's real, but it's also perceived. It is the way that affluence works. It, it brings us to a place where we feel like we still don't have enough and we, we still are just barely getting by and, and we're not able to make ends meet. And Solomon is going to highlight that issue this morning as we look at uh, affluence and how that impacts our lives. He keeps moving, though, again in verse 11. He says, the only benefit of wealth is for the eyes to feast on. You see what the implication of that is, that, that affluence really doesn't solve our problems, but rather it's simply for our eyes to give something to look at, something to make us feel as if we have a solution to our problems, but it doesn't provide the answers that we ultimately need for security. He says in verse 12, the affluent man is restless because of his pursuit of still more riches. You see there in that passage, he says that the the laborer, the one who works, whether he has plenty or not enough, he rests at night, but the the man with affluence is restless. And and you know that as, as we've gone on our own pursuits of riches, you know that as we pursue riches or the love of riches, that there's an inherent restlessness in that that we find no satisfaction. We're not able to sleep well at night simply because we've filled up our bank accounts, okay? In verse 13, he says that wealth can be hoarded and it can be harmful. He says also that it can be lost through misfortune. And then finally, he brings up that idea that he's mentioned prior, uh, that from dust we come and to dust we return, that our, our fortunes and our wealth and our affluence, it cannot be taken with us. That we have it for a time, it is alone from God, and at the moment when our lives are demanded of us, that that is the end of our riches and affluence. That those things do not carry over into the next world. You see, I, I would summarize, as Solomon is speaking about affluence this morning, I, I would summarize that he's giving these various warnings about the pursuit, the headlong pursuit of wealth and riches and affluence. He's saying if this is... The thing that you're pursuing to find control, security, and ultimately rest in this world, it will not satisfy you. As a matter of fact, it will do the very opposite, okay? Where you think you'll be content, you'll be unsatisfied. Where you think you'll have enough, you will not have enough. Where you think you'll be secure, you'll actually be insecure. Ultimately, I would say the conclusion of Solomon is that the pursuit or the love of affluence in an end of itself leads to a loss of control. It leads to a loss of control. You think you'll have more control, you actually have less control. It is your money and your wealth that becomes the thing that that drives you, that defines you, that guides you. You are the servant of your affluence. You're the servant of your wealth. You know this to be the case, and you know that the Bible's concerned with the subject because we can go through the Old and New Testament and we can see many warnings about affluence and prosperity, can't we? The love of money, whether it's Solomon or it's the voice of Jesus, who spoke maybe more about money than almost anything else, okay? The various warnings, the love of money is the root of all evil. You go throughout the history of the church and you'll find every uh, favorite pastor you have, every favorite theologian, somewhere you'll find that they've written on prosperity and the dangers of prosperity for the Christian church. There are so many quotes, I don't even know which one to pull, but I'll give you one. Thomas Carlyle, when he was writing about affluence and prosperity, he said, for a hundred people that can bear adversity, there is hardly a one that can bear prosperity, okay? 
So all these warnings throughout the history of the church concerning affluence and prosperity, not that it's ultimately evil, but that the Christian church must be very, very, very careful as they pursue affluence because of the various dangers that are mentioned in this passage, that affluence does not give control, but it is dangerous for the human heart if you're not careful. Now let me say something, though, on the other side, okay? This has led many people throughout the history of the church, it has led many people to say, well, the answer then is a a form of Christian communism, all right? From the time that Christ leaves the earth until this very day, there are always voices within the church advocating for a a, a version of Christian communism. That is to say, a version that says there is no rich, there is no poor, we all ought to be equal. That's what we should pursue, okay? That's most often found in Jesus' words to the rich man. They say, look, there's the prescription for Christian living. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. That's what we're all called to do. One of the modern voices for that way of life, you, you probably have heard of him before, is Shane Claiborne. Shane Claiborne is a pastor with the Red Letter uh, Christian Society, and he's a big advocate of a a modern version of Christian communism. Let me share with you uh, one of his quotes. Uh, He said this, How is it that you are rich? The root and the the origin of it must have been injustice, for God did not make one person rich and another poor, but he left the earth to be free to all people. Okay? So you see... That's the mindset that underlines the movement, and it goes simply like this. How are you rich? It has to be through injustice, okay? How are you affluent? How do you have wealth? It has to be through injustice, because God did not make the rich. He did not make the poor. He made the earth free for all, okay? So there's the one extreme, right? The, the only pursuing affluence, wealth, and, and belongings, making that our very existence. There's the other extreme, that is, God did not make the rich and the poor. And that also is problematic, isn't it? right? Both of those mindsets are incorrect. They're dangerous to the Christian church, and I'll tell you why. Not only does all of Scripture speak against both of these pursuits, but this passage here this morning also speaks against it, okay? So verse 18 through 20 is the, is the answer. It is the conclusion. Let me read that out loud, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 18 here in Ecclesiastes 5, behold, What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart, okay? So verse 19, verse 19 is important. It says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Okay, so did you hear that? The idea that God hasn't made the rich and God hasn't made the poor, that these are the result of injustice, it flies in the face of Scripture because Scripture over and over again tells us that it is God who has given wealth and it is God who has given poverty. You read it there in verse 19, right? To whom God has given wealth and possessions, right? So it doesn't say to whom has stumbled upon or to whom through injustice has pursued. It says to whom God has given wealth and possessions. And at the end of the verse, it says, this is the gift of God, all right? So let us not then say that God is a liar, that this is not true. Rather, let us acknowledge 
that God is the one who gives wealth and God is the one who gives poverty, all right? What we see as we look at this passage is that the love of affluence is just as bad for the Christian as is the love of poverty. We've talked about this the last two months, haven't we? The love of work is just as bad as the love of laziness, right? The love of pleasure is just as bad as the love of whatever the opposite of pleasure is, okay? Having no pleasure in your life. In, in every way, in everything that we've looked at, the, the things of this world and the, the status of our lives and the things that we pursue or don't pursue, they only become idols in our hearts when we make them to be the ultimate things. And so as we look at the passage this morning, we, we must acknowledge that it is God who has made the rich just as it is God who has made the poor. Now let me tell you though, there's a reason that God has made the rich and there's a reason that God has made the poor. And there's an answer to the question this morning, and it's in verse 20. Verse 20 says this, for, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You know what that passage means? You, that verse, you may read it and you may say, well, that, I'm confused about what does verse 20 mean? The, the Hebrew, the original language, it says this. As you read verse 20, it says this. It says, for, for he will not much dwell on the days of his life. And the, the word dwell is a very common word in the Old Testament scriptures. It's a common word and it often has a negative connotation. It's the word that's used when we talk about thinking too much about our own distress or being consumed too much with our own sin. It's the word that you might say, well, was Ruth at the beginning of the book of Ruth when she said, well, my husband is gone and my two sons are gone. I am um, bitter and I will always be bitter, okay? Uh, that's her. She's dwelling too much on the negative, it seems, in the book of Ruth. It is what happens when we think too much about judgment, too much about condemnation, not a, as much about what God has done through Christ Jesus. That's what the word means. So if you read the passage correctly, what it's saying is, he, that is the son or daughter of God, uh, will not much dwell on, will not camp out on the distresses, the sin, the negative, the condemnation, the judgment. They will not stay there very long because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What Solomon eventually arrives at is very simple. Rich or poor, working or not, pursuing pleasure or not, however God has designed your life and whatever you're doing, God gives joy in the heart that makes you not much dwell on the distresses and the brokenness of this world. God causes joy to be in the heart. Now listen, I want to tell you something. This, this equation this morning, control to security to rest, is an equation that works in the human heart. We don't need to reinvent what's going on within us. We, we don't need to think, okay, I need to not seek out security and rest. No, as a matter of fact, what we see happening in this passage is that we realize that it is God's control and it is God's security and it is God's rest that we have these things through God who gives joy in the heart of the believer. And so for us, we find rest because we have security in Christ. We have security and rest because it is our God who has control over all things, okay? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, right? Um, for he who did not spare his own son but gave him up also for us, how will he not with him give us all good things? Isn't that right? The thrust of that passage is that God has given his only son. 
If that God who controls the universe has given you his only son, won't he give you all good things? Of course he will. Therefore, he controls. He gives security. You should find rest in that. That's how you have joy in your heart, as it mentions here in verse 20. Listen, here's where I think this passage brings us to, okay? Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he said this. He said, we should not only long for with David to say that it is good that I was distressed, okay? So our desire should not only be with David to say it was good that I was distressed. That it's a reflection in a future time on a present distress. That is to say, in the past, I realized it was good that I was distressed. But rather, we should desire to say it is good that I am distressed. That is in the present. He's saying, as we're being sanctified by the work of the Spirit in our hearts, it is good for us to say, it is good now. Whatever the case may be, whatever station I am in life, it is good. It is good that I am distressed. That's a hard thing to say. What I think this means for this passage is is very simple, okay? What the Bible says about affluence is this. God makes the rich, and the rich follower of Christ it is good for them to say, it is good that I'm rich. And then to ask the question, why has God made me to be rich? It's a good question, right? That God makes the poor. And for the poor follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is good for them to say, it is good that I'm poor. Why has God made me poor? And God makes some to be poor, who he will make later to be rich. He makes some to be rich, who he will make later to be poor. And for the poor and the rich who become rich or become poor, it is good for them to say, it is good that I'm poor and it is good that I'm rich. Why has God made me to be this way? And as we ask those questions, we're reminded that ultimately our security is not in those things, that we find no control in affluence just as we find no control in our work or in our pleasure. But that God has given us his son, Christ Jesus, that in him we have all the security that we need. That we've been blessed through him, that we've been redeemed through him. That in Christ each day his spirit works in our hearts to trust him more. As we trust him more, we can greet all circumstances alike, girded up with the truth that this too is good. This too is right. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation. As God is at work, that it is good and it is right. And through this and in him, we may have peace that passes all understanding. That's the thrust of the passage. That peace, contentment, rest, security is being worked out within us, not because of the situations outside of us, but because our God is in control. And if he's in control, we have security and rest. Just as a little boy will say, Dad, where's the milk? Because the pantry is full, so we know that we have security because God has given us his only son. My encouragement to you is very simple this morning. Would you rest in that? Would you find your hope in that? Would you find your security? Would it not matter so much what is going on around us, but would we find our great confidence in Jesus Christ, our only hope and our Savior? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent us your son. We thank you, our Lord and our God, that there is nothing in this world that will satisfy us or save us. We ask that as your followers, you would make us 
Lord, ever more able and willing to find our hope in you. Would you, Lord, deprive us of our love of the things of this world so that whenever, Lord, you work to give us both bounty and to make us have want and need, would you make us to glorify you? Would you make our hearts satisfied? Would we declare to ourselves and to the watching world that it is good because it comes from the hand of God? And it is good because our good God who controls everything has decreed before the foundation of the earth that we would be redeemed and that all things would work together for our good. Would you make us satisfied through your Son, Christ Jesus, by the work of your Spirit? Lord, we ask all these things for your glory. Amen.